0: Good morning and grace and peace to you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love to hear the pitter-patter of, I don't know if it's really pitter-patter, but the sounds of the kids (laughs) running out. I love the sound of children in church, so it's a good thing. How many of you have ever been part of a victory celebration of some kind? Any hands going? A few of you, okay. We lived in Denver back when the Denver Broncos won their first two Super Bowls and the Colorado Avalanche won two Stanley Cups. When the local team wins the championship, what happens? People celebrate, don't they? People will storm the streets for hours after the game and celebrate in all kinds of ways. We've all probably seen news footage of people getting way out of hand sometimes in their celebrations. I'm going to give credit to the people of Denver, although some things did get a little bit out of hand. Their celebrations were nothing compared to some other cities with cars being overturned and rioting and actually looting the local business establishments all because your team won. Sometimes I just don't understand people. But what does the winning team usually get the day after or a couple days after their big victory? They get that victory parade, don't they? through downtown with all the people lining the streets and shouting their praise. They receive all the public praise and adulation they think they deserve because they won an important game. Now, don't get me wrong, I enjoy seeing those victory parades, especially if it's my team that's won. And for those of you who are Vikings fans, it still might come someday. Someday. But I don't know. You know we're praying. <laughs> but we are here in church on Sunday morning, on Palm Sunday with palm branches up front, and we're celebrating and we're remembering a day that someone got a victory parade who hadn't even won the game yet. In fact, as we look at our passage for today, we're going to see that Jesus got this victory parade and all all these people lining the streets and shouting their praises when they didn't realize that he wasn't even playing the same game that they were giving him credit for winning. Does that make sense? If not, hopefully it will by the time we're finished this morning. Why don't we turn in our Bibles to our text for this morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke's Gospel in chapter 19, and please stand with me as you're able for the reading from God's Word. This morning I'll be reading the triumphal entry passage from Luke, Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it begins on page 743. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to him, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just As he had told them, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Oh, Lord, as we look at this very familiar passage, give us new eyes to see it, Lord. Open it up to us this morning. May we recognize the time of your coming to us in this passage as well and in our individual lives. And as always, Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our passage for this morning we see Jesus approaching Bethphage and Bethany and calling for his disciples, at least a couple of them, to go ahead of him and get a donkey's colt for him to ride on as he travels down the road from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. This is called, in most of the Gospel accounts, the triumphal entry. And being a passage that I think we're all fairly familiar with, I would like us to take a quick look at the beginning here at what has happened in the life of Jesus that has led him to this place on this particular day. Luke's Gospel has Jesus approaching Jerusalem shortly after his encounter with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, in Jericho. John's Gospel has Jesus entering Jerusalem also from Bethany, right after Jesus had been given a dinner in Bethany, where he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. We looked at that passage last week. This was that dinner where Mary had poured the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiped his feet with her hair, filling the whole house with the fragrance. Jesus was very well known in Bethany. In fact, many scholars believe that Bethany was the place that Jesus stayed in many times as he traveled. It was the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. They were Jesus' friends. And it was also right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that the religious leaders began plotting to find a way to kill him. Mark's Gospel has Jesus leaving Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, and as he leaves Jericho, Jesus heals Bartimaeus, who was a blind man. The text says that once Bartimaeus received his sight, that he, as well, followed Jesus on the road. Matthew's Gospel has Jesus healing two blind men as they were leaving Jericho with a large crowd following them. Now, these two blind men aren't mentioned in Matthew's Gospel. One of them may have been this same Bartimaeus from Mark's Gospel, but we're not told because Jesus healed many people. But the text in Matthew tells us that both men received their sight and they followed Jesus. So if you put all of these passages together, we have Jesus who has made up his mind to go to Jerusalem. Even though he knew that it was dangerous and he knew that there were people there who are looking to kill him. Jesus has set his sights on going to Jerusalem, and nothing is going to hold him back. He had obviously been in Jericho. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that. While in Jericho, he had visited the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and he had healed at least two blind people as they were traveling. And it seems at this point, he already has a large crowd of people following him as he traveled. Now, looking at a map, Jericho is to the northeast of Jerusalem. So Jericho would be up here, Jerusalem down here. It's east of the hill country of Ephraim, where John's Gospel tells us that Jesus had just been with his disciples. So to get to Jerusalem, they would have traveled southwest about 12 or so miles until they got to Bethany, Bethany being about two or so miles from Jerusalem. While in Bethany, a dinner had been held in Jesus' honor, most likely hosted by Martha, Mary, Mary and Lazarus. And John tells us that it was the next day, after this dinner, that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And when he reached the hill called the Mount of Olives, it was there that he sent these two disciples to go ahead and get that donkey for him to ride on. Now, looking at this donkey, there are a few observations that I have. The first is this. Jesus knew where the donkey would be, and he knew what his disciples needed to tell the owner of the donkey, so he would let him let them have the donkey. Some commentators have said that this is simply because Jesus is God. And being God, he would have unlimited knowledge about that donkey and about its owner. And I totally agree with them. Jesus had that power and that ability. He was totally capable of knowing about the donkey that way. And the scriptures aren't clear about this, but I have to wonder... Since Jesus was well-known in the area, if Jesus hadn't possibly seen this donkey at one time or another during his travels, passed by it before maybe he'd even spoken to the owner of the donkey before, maybe not necessarily about borrowing the donkey, but just in casual conversation, hey, that's a nice-looking animal you have there. Has it ever been written? We don't know if that happened or not. It's not in the scriptures. It's just speculation. What we do know, though, is that when the disciples came for it and the owner asked them, why are you untying my donkey? When they said that the Lord needs it, that's all that the owner needed to hear, and he let them take it. Another very important part about this donkey is that by riding this donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus was fulfilling one of the many prophecies in the Old Testament, referring to God's promised Messiah. In Zechariah 9.9, we read these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus was showing anyone who was familiar with the Old Testament prophecies that he was the promised Messiah. He was the coming king that they had been waiting for. I talked earlier about victory parades. When a conquering king would come back, would ride back into town, or a leader who would just won a really important battle, they would come riding in on their battle horse with their sword held high in the air, and the people of the city would, would line the streets and shout their praises and adoration and cheer on their conquering king. Well, that's kind of what we see going on here in our, in our passage, except Jesus didn't ask for a horse to ride in on. He asked for the colt of a donkey, a young donkey. And he didn't come in riding with the sword held high and asking the people for their adoration. He came riding in humbly, much more like a servant than a conquering king. Now keep in mind that a lot of the people who were following Jesus were hoping that the Messiah would come with great power and overthrow the Roman government. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Many of these people had been witnesses to that or had obviously heard about it. Bethany was just right there. A man who could do that, they thought, certainly could defeat the Romans. And as the people daily bowed down to Rome, even though they didn't want to, they hoped for, they longed for a warrior king who would come on a great white horse like David did a thousand years before when he he knocked, knocked out the Philistines, right? That's what the people were looking for, this conquering king to come. So you can imagine their confusion when the people saw their supposed Messiah ask for a donkey to ride. Jesus was about to enter the city of David, not as a warrior Messiah who would physically conquer the Roman army, but as the prophetic Prince of Peace, who would wage war, but not with the Romans. No, he would wage war for the hearts and the souls of men. He did come to conquer, but again, not the Romans. He came to conquer sin and death so that mankind could be free from its bondage to sin, not their bondage to the Romans. And while the disciples obeyed Jesus without asking any questions, I have to wonder what was really going through their minds. They would probably have been amazed once again that everything happened just as Jesus said it would. But they may have been wondering about what was really going on here because Jesus seemed to be, in their minds, ad-libbing a little bit. right? He wasn't going along with what they thought should be the words of the script. You may recall that just shortly before this, the disciples had been arguing amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They were hoping Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, and set up his earthly kingdom. And they, as Jesus's 12 disciples, as his chosen ones, well, they were going to rule with him. They were going to be his cabinet and and reign with him in power. But instead of ruling with him, instead of these great positions of power, the disciples find themselves running errands, fetching donkeys, later on looking for a place to to have a meal together, instead of marching with Jesus in places of honor and power. It, It wasn't what they were expecting. The people who had been following Jesus and who now lined the road as he came forward. They were expecting Jesus as well to reign in power now and conquer those Romans for them. What did the people do as Jesus began his trip riding on that donkey from the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem? They spread their cloaks out on the ground in front of him as he came. What was was the significance of that? The laying of their cloaks on the road would be like Rolling out the red carpet today for royalty, right? In Second Kings chapter nine verse thirteen, the people spread their cloaks on the steps under Yehu as he walked up the stairs because he had just been anointed as the new king of Israel. The people here are doing the same thing. They're recognizing Jesus as royalty and they're giving him the honor that a king deserved. Now John's gospel has the people lining the roads with palm branches as well and shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew and Mark's gospels have the people throwing their cloaks on the ground and then cutting branches and spreading them on the road in front of Jesus as he came. Now the branches they cut off were most likely palm branches as well of some kind, whether or not they look exactly like what we have here today, they probably don't. They probably came from date palms and were probably much larger branches than what these are. But why did they use palm branches? I mean, this is called Palm Sunday, and that's where we get that from. Why palm branches? Well, there may have been just because the palm trees were the closest by and the easiest ones to get to, but palm branches actually have been used before many times in Israel's history. Palm branches in ancient times were symbols of, of goodness, of well being, and of victory. They were also symbols of God's provision as palm trees grew where God had provided what they needed to grow and thrive where they were. Palm trees have been found on ancient coins, on important buildings. King Solomon had palm branches carved into the walls and the doors of the temple. We see a scene in Revelation 7 where there's a great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they're standing before the throne and the Lamb, and they're wearing white robes. What are they holding in their hands? They're holding palm branches in their hands. And they're worshiping the Lamb. And in some ways, that's what we have going on in our passage for today. The people are worshiping Jesus. They're praising Him for what they think he's going to do for them. Remember what I said earlier, that the people were giving Jesus a victory parade for a game that he wasn't even playing. And that's really what's going on here. They're expecting an earthly rule of an earthly king. They're expecting Jesus to come in and free them from the Romans and set himself up as the new king of Israel. And and forgive me for this analogy, but Jesus was playing a whole different game than they thought he was. He was coming to set them free, but again, not from the Romans, but from their sin. And we're going to see that in just a few short days. As the people realize that Jesus isn't doing what they want him to do, they're going to turn on him pretty quickly. Look at what the people are shouting to Jesus as he makes his way down the road. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. John's Gospel has them shouting, Hosanna! We sang that earlier. We sing that every Palm Sunday. Hosanna literally means, Lord, save us. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. That's who they wanted Jesus to be. Matthew and Mark have them saying very similar things. But in just a few short days, those cries of Hosanna and and blessed is the King will become cries of, no, no, we want Barabbas and crucify him. Crucify him. How fickle we can be when things don't go the way we want them to. But here on this day, as the crowds are shouting their praise to the Lord, even if it may be a little bit misdirected, they're still shouting praise. And what's the response of the Pharisees in the crowd? What do they say? Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. Don't you hear what they're saying? That phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a phrase straight out of Psalm 118, verse 26, which Bob led us in reading together this morning. And the Pharisees knew that this particular psalm was one that spoke of the coming Messiah. Messiah. That's why the Pharisees were upset. They were telling Jesus to make them stop saying it. They're telling Jesus, hey, they think you're the Messiah. You've got to tell them to be quiet. We, we can't have this. I find it interesting that there were even Pharisees here, lining the road with everyone else. In John's Gospel, right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, we read of the Pharisees plotting to take Jesus' life. In John chapter 11, verse 57, we read this. But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, they should report it to them. Why? So that they might arrest him. So the Pharisees are looking to arrest Jesus. Well, here's Jesus, and there are Pharisees right here with him. But they didn't arrest him that day, did they? Why not? Because to arrest Jesus Here, with all these people shouting his praise, would have caused a riot. And that's the last thing that they wanted. They wanted to be able to arrest Jesus quietly when no one else was around. And as we'll see in just a a few short days' time, Judas will play right into their plans as he leads them to Jesus at a time when most people are already at home for the night. But again, here on this day, The Pharisees simply tell Jesus to have his followers be quiet because they don't like what the people are saying. They were saying that Jesus was the king. They were implying that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But the Pharisees, see, they didn't see Jesus as the promised Messiah. They saw him as a rabble-rouser, right? He He was one causing trouble. He was a troublemaker, and they wanted his followers and his message to be silent. This is my favorite part of the whole Palm Sunday story, and it's only found in Luke's Gospel. Jesus responds and he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He's saying, if they don't shout my praise, then creation itself will. The rocks themselves that I created for my pleasure and for my glory, they will cry out my praise. Jesus was telling the Pharisees, if he told his followers to stop shouting the words from Psalm 118, then the Pharisees themselves were going to hear the very first rock concert. So let me ask you this, are you letting the creation, the rocks and the trees and the oceans and the seas and the animals, are you letting the creation shout louder than you do about the glory of your Creator? because we should be the ones crying out constantly our praise to God for all that he has done for us. The people along the road were shouting praise to Jesus because they thought he was coming to set up his kingdom and kick the Romans out. We know in hindsight what Jesus really came to do. And because we know that, because we've experienced it ourselves, our praise should be even greater than theirs because we are praising God for our sins being forgiven, for our debt being paid. The people lining the streets that day simply didn't understand what Jesus was going to Jerusalem to accomplish. But Jesus knew, didn't he? He knew all along throughout his ministry where he was headed and what his father's plan was for the redemption of his creation. Jesus knew what lay ahead, and we get a glimpse of this, don't we? As he approaches Jerusalem, and he weeps over what he sees and what he knows. Look at Jesus' words as he quietly wept over this great city. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus knew what lay ahead for him in the next week, and he knew what lay ahead for Jerusalem years down the road. He knew that he had come to offer peace to anyone who would accept it. But he also knew that the people of his day just wouldn't understand. Even his disciples wouldn't understand until he conquered death on their behalf and rose again on the third day. And we'll talk about that more next week on Resurrection Sunday. If we go back a few chapters in Luke's Gospel, we'll find Jesus even then already lamenting over Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 13, we find Jesus saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that day when they would see him again was this day, the first Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and once again lamented and wept over the city. Even on this great day of rejoicing and celebration, Jesus had sorrow for his people because he had come to bring them peace. But they were looking for a different kind of peace and they didn't recognize that God's peace, the peace that passes all understanding, was right there in front of them, soon to be offered up as the Lamb of God, who through his death would bring true peace to our sinful souls as he would take away the sins of the world. So what is Palm Sunday all about? It's a celebration, isn't it? It's a celebration of the coming of the Messiah. It's a time of praise and adoration as Jesus looks ahead to his week of passion. And again, we, since we have the privilege of looking back, we know and understand exactly what Jesus was doing when he asked for that donkey's colt and he rode it down the hill. He was letting all the people know that he was the promised Messiah. He was the coming king. Only he had come to conquer a kingdom that the people didn't even realize they were living in. They thought they were living under Roman oppression, and they were. But what they didn't realize was that they were living under the more oppressing power of their own sin nature. And that's what Jesus came to conquer on their behalf. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says this, For he, talking about God, for God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that's what we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table, which we'll be doing in just a couple minutes here. The kingdom that the people needed to be freed from was this dominion of darkness, the sin nature that lives within every man, woman, and child on earth. And because of what Jesus went through at the end of this Holy Week, through faith, we can say that we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and we have been brought into a new kingdom the kingdom of the Son of God who grants us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So yes, Palm Sunday is a day of celebration as we remember Jesus' triumphal ride into Jerusalem. But let us never forget the reason that he came. Even though the people didn't understand what it was that they were crying out, they had the message right, didn't they? They cried out, Hosanna, which means save us. And Jesus did come to save. They cried out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, Jesus came to bring us peace. And that peace can only be found through faith in Him and His finished work for us. Do you have that peace today? I hope so. Do you know Jesus as as your Lord and Savior? Have you cried out at some time in your life, Hosanna, save me. And then thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I hope so. Please pray with me as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table together and receive the grace of God as we remember and celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. Oh Lord, we do give you thanks and praise for entering Jerusalem so many years ago, knowing what awaited you at the end of the week. You are our Savior. You are our King. And as we prepare ourselves to come to your table together, we give thanks that you, as Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, that, that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross on our behalf, so that we could be set free from sin and be made right with you once again. We humbly come before you, and we ask that as we partake in the sacrament, that you would grant us your grace to live for you and to be your witnesses. It is in your name and for your sake that we pray. Amen.